All right, guys, this is Inappropriate Earl. It's a legendary day here in the Inappropriate Earl podcast studios because this is the first time I'm doing a Zoom interview on my own. Usually I have someone helping me. I'm sure my guest loves hearing that. Uh, he's also the third Stanley Cup winner I've ever had on, the first being the great Theo Fleury twice, and uh, the second being the wild man himself, Dustin Penner who had his police dog running all over my apartment. And uh, I, it's an honor to have him on. Um, he's someone I grew up watching. Uh, please, inappropriate Earl fans, welcome the Golden Greek. Not John Tolis, <laughs> the wrestler, but Mr. Nick Kiprios. Thanks, Earl. Uh, I appreciate it. I, I'm in good company. Uh, those guys played the game hard, uh, Theo and... Uh, and and Dustin Penner, of course, uh, with his uh, Stanley Cup success in uh, in LA. So uh, I'm 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 glad to be on your show, and uh, certainly glad to get to know you a little bit more, and and how well connected you are to our great game. I love it. I love hearing all about it. Well, I'm a weird hockey fan because I actually grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, but I grew up a Ranger fan because, as you can guess, the King games weren't exactly a high priority on television. Uh, before Mr. Gretzky came here. So I I grew up being fascinated watching Barry Beck play just because he was so much bigger than everyone. And I was like, who is this guy? And uh, and then the game was a lot, to me, funner to watch back then just because it was more uh, more emotion, you know, and that carried over into your era. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean the fighting, but I don't know, the games today – Remind me of a scrimmage game. Most games, <laughs> it's it's gone very technical. Our game, and uh, on and off the ice, I think just the way that you 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 program yourself to get ready, and sometimes the coaches, I think, get caught in a little bit more of the the technical aspect, and we know where the analytics have gone, and all of a sudden we're hearing uh, more about uh, uh, percentages of things that you know you you didn't necessarily think of um, other than having a gut feeling on, uh, but it is what it is. I agree with you. I kind of feel fortunate Earl to have been playing in an era where we had a, a nice hybrid of, of old school and a little bit of new school. And uh, that emotion was always there. That's the one part we'll, we'll totally agree on right off the bat that, Sometimes it looks like our players are so programmed that they're not even allowed to think for themselves. They're just like in a robotic kind of state where it's like, stand here, go there, go here, and uh, and then come off the ice. Uh, but there's also times when, in its true fashion, it's uh, it's played magnificently with the speed of the game and, and the skill level. So it is what it is, but we we still love it because it's our game. Well, I feel old when I say this, when I tell, and I am old, 52, uh, but, you know, when I tell people, like, I used to look so forward to the Ranger Flyer games, you know, when <laughs> the Flyers had a football team <laughs> on the ice, you know, Glenn Cochran and Dave Brown and Ben Wilson and, and even three or four other guys you could fight, and then the Rangers would have, like, a nuclear arms race and you have Beck and John Stone and Hospodar and 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 now I can maybe name say Ryan Reeves and Curtis McDermott and maybe Tom Wilson when he's not uh head hunting. 
or suspended. I mean, what's your take on Tom Wilson? Just because as a, as a fan, I look at him and go, uh, he's going to hurt someone one day. Like when is the league? And I can't believe I'm saying this growing up in the era that I liked watching hockey the most, your era, maybe slightly before yours. Are they waiting for him to really hurt somebody and then go, we have a problem? Well, um, happy to answer that and, and talk about Tom Wilson. But I will tell you that when I signed my first professional contract uh, with the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, Cochran was in there. Ben Wilson wasn't there. But I did have uh, the likes of, of Dave Brown, um, you know, uh, and, and, and Stanley uh, and ex uh, boxcar uh, hospital as well. So there was, there's just this real strong element of that, that team that you were talking about or the mindset. And I remember playing in my first exhibition game and, and the bus uh, was going around picking up certain uh, established players in, in their community. Uh, and no one felt good until Dave Brown came on the bus. Then we were happily going to go play the Pittsburgh Penguins in an exhibition game that you knew they were going to have like eight, 10 fights in it. But I just remember the sigh of relief or the, uh, all the, all the players exhaling the moment Dave Brown got on the bus. It was like, now we're safe. Now we feel good about going to play a, a hockey game. And, and that's the way it was. And you speak of many characters, you know, 15, 20 years ago, like a Dave Brown and a Daryl Stanley, uh, but not so much anymore. But Tom Wilson does fall into that. He really does. And I'm sure today in 2021, when Tom Wilson gets on the bus to go play a hockey game, there's 19 other guys that uh, uh, breathe a little easier. And there is still room for a Tom Wilson in our game and everybody wants him out. And are there consequences for the way he plays? Yes. But, you know, if, if I'm the general manager, the owner of the Washington Capitals or, or, or teammates, where do I have in the pecking order that he may hurt someone else on the other team? I wouldn't hold it in a very high. Right. I mean, it's, it's not my problem if he hurts somebody on the other team. All I know is I feel a little better. I feel a little safer. Uh, he's just not in that goon mode. He is a, a top six forward. He can play 18 minutes a night. He can play power play. He can play on your first line. He skates like he's five foot nine. He hits like he's six foot five. There aren't that many guys out there. If I'm the Washington Capitals, could he hurt someone else on the other team? Yes. Is it my problem? No. Will I live with the repercussions of another suspension? Yes. But can he help me win a Stanley Cup? Another one? Yes. That's why I love Tom Wilson. Now, if you're a teammate of Tom Wilson's, like I noticed, like I could see the frustrated look on the Rangers' faces when Ed Hospodar would you know, he comes to mind the most, he, he would play Tom Wilson, like on defense, you know, maybe jump a guy, elbow a guy, you know, I know one, the one game where Clark Gillies broke his face. Uh, he had started by roughing up Mike Bossy. Do you kind of get a little unnerved that you might have to clean up some of his messes at times? 
Uh, no, no, no. This guy, these guys clean up their own messes and, uh, you know, you know, there's, there's two, there's two type of hockey players when, when you, when you play with that edge, they're the ones that, that can start a fire and they're the ones that can put fires out, you know, and Tom Wilson goes out there and, and starts fires, but he can also put them out if he has to. So he's a, He's a, he's a double dimension kind of guy. The ones that you are talking about, I think are the ones that, that start them, that, that can't put them out. And yeah, there could be some issues down the road between teammates or guys that, you know, say that, uh, you know, I don't want to clean up your mess, but Tom Wilson, isn't one of those guys. And, you know, I had a hospital who I still talk to today, you know, through the alumni and, and we share great stories of him really kind of taking me under my, uh, his, his, uh, his wing a little bit, you know, when I first started, uh, trying out for the Philadelphia flyers, but he is, he is not in the same place as a Tom Wilson. There are a few, few players, you know, that, that can play the way Tom Wilson has played over the years. Lindros to me and Tom Wilson have a, a lot in common. Now, Tom Wilson will never have the, the finish and the finesse as Hall of Famer like Eric Lindros. But as, sure, as far as size, speed, power, agility, Tom Wilson is closer to Eric Lindros than many want to admit. Oh, for sure. No, I mean, I, it's funny. I was looking at some of your, uh, uh, pugilistic endeavors last night on YouTube. And, uh, for some reason, the, uh, Tampa Bay lightning flyers playoff series from 95, 96 came up where it was basically Eric Lindros against Michelle Petit and Igor Ulanov, and, uh, just made me really miss that era of, uh, like each team had three or four Tom Wilson's. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to get into I, you now. I, th I think, well, first of all, I, I think as much as some teams would not publicly admit, they would love a couple of Tom Wilsons on their team. And uh, they're just, I think they're harder to find. Now, if I was out there and I could skate and move like a Tom Wilson at that, that size, I, I think I'd be writing my own ticket to make $5 million a year. They're just, there's just not many out there. I mean, I could really only think of uh, Ryan Reeves, who might not score as much as uh, Mr. Wilson and yeah. uh, Kachuk in Calgary. Uh, it's a little smaller. Yeah, version. They, uh, they, but they're all, bo both those guys are still missing, you know, something. Um, and, you know, Matthew Kachuk's a very skilled player, but he just does not have that, that physical presence. And he is just no near, no, nowhere near as heavy as a guy like Tom Wilson is, uh, but you, you better keep your head on a swivel when, when Matthew Kachuk's on the ice, cause he will catch you much like Tom Wilson. I mean, as a player, when you're playing against those type of guys, yeah. do, do you know, like if you're in the corners and there's a line change for the other team, do you sense like, uh Oh, he's out there. hundred percent. 100%. And it will factor into what you do the rest of your shift. And, you know, on one hand, you want to focus on the game and managing the puck and sticking to a system. But there's also that, that corner of your mind saying, 
this guy could end my career uh, if I'm not ready or if I'm not prepared and I leave myself in a vulnerable position, this guy will bury me. And when you start getting guys thinking like that, you've done a pretty good job. Right. I mean, in your era, I mean, just on uh, like, say the capitals, you had, uh, you know, obviously Scott Stevens, who was uh, maybe the, yeah. the last true uh, great fierce oh. checker. Vicious. I mean, he, you know, obviously the Korea hit stands out and, you know, he had a few against yeah. Lindros and he yeah. wasn't a giant guy, like in terms of how oh, he's five, five, ten and a half, maybe five eleven. I, I mean, yeah, maybe he's, some people would call him six, but that's it. That was it. I mean, he was sheer uh, brute strength and determination. That guy, whether it was an off day or a day of a game, would do 250 pushups just for fun. Um, he was a specimen. And, you know, along with just, you know, this, this sheer brute strength came this attitude that, you know, he, he, he there were some times I'd look over the bench and I see Scott Stevens and his eyes would be rolling back like uh, slot machines in Vegas. And I'm just like, look out other team. And, but he, he, he backed it up. He fought some of the big boys as well. I fought him when he went to St. Louis, when he decided to bail on Washington and sign as a, uh, as a restricted free agent with St. Louis. First time we went in there, I, I ended up fighting him uh, just to prove a point to my coach that, uh, that we weren't, we weren't going to cut any deals with Scott Stevens that night. I mean, do you t like, I know there's the famous uh, sound by George LaRock and uh, I think right as Ivanon's kind of doing a gentleman's, Hey, do you want to fight? Okay. And I think George LaRock actually wished him good luck, which he probably needed. Uh, was there a unspoken uh, thing between you and Scott? It was unspoken. Yeah, absolutely right. not. I don't think I've never, ever uh, had anything in terms of, uh, you know, any premeditated or predetermined, uh, you know, scenario to fight a guy. It was, you know, I have told guys we're going tonight. I mean, I've told people in warm up, I got a problem with you and I've got a problem the way you, you play. And I got a problem stemming from last game and, you know, I'm coming after you. Um, but, but nothing like, um, good luck. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's when people really started to question everything. Unfortunately, when George was miked, uh, he, he probably did the whole, the whole scenario um, a lot more harm than, than probably he, he ever thought of. Uh, George was just probably just trying to be a gentleman about the thing, but I think, I think it went sideways the moment somebody heard something like that. Right now, I kind of wish they heard the... Uh sound by between Tim Hunter and Dave Brown. And I, I won't, uh, you know, use the exact language they were using, but, uh, I think, uh, Mr. Hunter was calling Dave Brown, uh, a word that starts with a P cause he had, yeah. the, uh, Titan Jersey and, and, uh, Dave was, uh, telling him, well, he could tie his Jersey around his big 
blank a nose and uh, <laughs> it was like the first yeah there was always uh the art of the conversation just prior to any fight uh and un- unfortunately i, I would have loved to s- see that stuff stay behind the scenes right sometimes letting people's imagination uh is a lot better than the reality of it but we're in an era now where people expect all access everywhere. So uh, we've gone too far with it, uh, in my opinion, but uh, it's not like we're ever going to go back to the old way. So it is what it is. Well, uh, first off, Mike's, Mike's in the penalty box, Mike's and cameras in the dressing room. It's like, I don't know where we end it all. I mean, I do like a good John Tortorella press conference, but uh, <laughs> that's a show in itself. Very few things make me laugh as a stand-up comic. Of you know, I've done it for so long, I don't even know when I've started. Uh, but I just really love his. Uh, I, I can't imagine he's bitter, but uh, he just comes off so um, anti. So he. I don't know. Like he has a social anxiety disorder. Well, it's, uh, he, he, the older he gets, the less patience he has for anything right now around the game, whether it is uh, his players, whether it's the media, the questions that they ask, he's, he's one of those guys where it's like, he's, it's right up to here. You know, (laughs) it's like, there's no more room for him. Uh, but he wants to hang in there. He still wants to be a difference in, in Columbus. I don't know where that, that line is, is when, when he's gone too far, we keep, we keep seeing it and we go, okay, that's the new line. He's crossed it or there's no going back. He's lost his players. Patrick Lyonnais come in, supposed to be one of his superstars. Now he's treated them like crap. Patrick wants to probably not, here anymore I, I i mean every time you think that it's it's time to move on from tortorella uh he hangs in there he wins or he gets a vote of confidence from his general manager but he is one of those guys where deep down you know that he there's there's more that he probably now dislikes about the game than than the part that he loves about the game and I don't, I don't know exactly where that line is, but he's, he's, he's on it or he's awfully close to being on the wrong side of it, but we'll see how it plays out. Well, I mean, as soon as they did the trade for uh line, a, I was like, this is going to last about two weeks. And then <laughs> not that line a is a lazy player, but you know, he, he might not be the greatest uh, defensive minded player in the world. Uh, and I'm like, that's not going to fly with him. And uh, and I understand they had to trade uh, Pierre just because, uh, for whatever reason, him and Tortorella didn't get along. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, with the trade deadline coming up. Uh, I can't imagine they'll trade Line A already, but uh, I've even heard rumblings in LA that, you know, who knows? Well, you should have known the type of player that he is right off the bat, that he doesn't have a great reputation for, you know, being a 200 foot player. And you should have really known that you're not going to fix him in two weeks or four weeks (laughs) or six weeks or a shortened pandemic season that 
if you're going to get him to the promised land when one day that you hope to compete for a Stanley Cup, you 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 got to consider him a, a work in progress. But the moment you know you you don't see what you like, and he's shown it on many occasions in a Winnipeg Jet uniform. I I totally disagree with embarrassing him so close coming off a trade of that magnitude. I just don't think it sends a good message to your, your organization and most importantly, your fans who want to buy tickets to see this guy when you're telling us on some nights, he's just no good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as a, I mean, I'm a Kings fan, but you know, I, I watch as much hockey as I can and you can see this guy's already deflated after like two and a half weeks. It's like, I think he said, yeah. himself. you know, I, I don't know. He's, he's got a probably he's, he's got a good understanding of who he is or how good he is. I, this guy, I don't think will ever lack confidence and I don't think Tortorella can strip him of that. So he he's, I think he's got a strong personality and I think he's crystal clear on who he is, what he is and, and what Tortorella thinks of him. So he knows whether he's in Winnipeg or Columbus, that he's got a short window here before he becomes an unrestricted free agent, which is, uh, you know, a couple of years. Uh, and then he can truly decide where he wants to go. But up until that, I think he'll just, he'll roll with the punches, but I, I don't think, I don't think Tortorella will destroy this guy in any way. He's he's too he's too strong, I think, for that. All right. Well, I could talk to you all day about other players, but I really wanted you on because I read your book. It's out now, undrafted. Um, it's at the usual spots: Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. If you can find one that's not closed, yeah. uh, and I saw online. Yeah, I mean, it's. I read it yeah. in three days. Um, oh, thanks. And I really, uh, I thought selfishly, I'll just read the hockey stuff because I was a Ranger fan and I, I loved how you played on the Capitals and, and even the two years on the Whalers. I was a Whaler guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I really found the whole book interesting because it wasn't really, it's not a hockey book. It's a book about life. Uh with hockey maybe as the the background. Um, well, I I try to bring a little bit of all of it. it. It really is a story of my life since, you know, first discovering the game and you know, growing up immigrant family. Both my parents uh came over from Greece. So, it wasn't about the game of hockey, it was about uh learning about the game and adapting to uh Canadian culture which so built around the game of hockey. And I think it's a, it's a story for, for, for some who are, are looking at hockey from the outside in and understanding that, you know, great things can still happen, even if you don't have uh, connections to the game or, you know, have an inside track. I was always a kid kind of on the outside looking in much like my father probably felt from the moment that he came over from Greece to Canada at a young age, but you just, you find a way and it, what you don't know, you, you ask or you learn. And I, I think that probably sends uh, the tone. It sets the tone up pretty good for my story and, and my book. And, you know, 
again, being a, a kid on the outside looking in and ending up pay, playing, you know, over 400 hockey games in the NHL, winning a Stanley Cup, ending up a broadcaster, and then ultimately uh, covering the Olympics and Hockey Night in Canada. That's, uh, and, and no one would like their odds <laughs> of that happening. <laughs> If you, if you knew me at, at seven or eight years of age, but I, I think it, it should hopefully inspire people to say, not why me, but why not me? Well, just to go undrafted is, is like, you know, I mean, being a Kings fan, I was familiar with Dave Taylor being, I think he was drafted in like, the, this is when the, the NHL had like 18 rounds. <laughs> yeah. Fifth, the last. I mean, I was like, well, yeah, wacky story. Late pick. Um, to go undrafted, that has to be a spur in the ass, pardon my language. Uh, to go, oh, you know, at the time, uh, what was it? Uh, maybe 28 teams didn't want me. Well, I'm going to show them. And yeah, just the, I had no idea that you had gone to, I think, five Philadelphia Flyer camps. Uh, yeah. And like that had to, at any point did discouragement kick in? Like, wow, this is my fourth camp. Uh, not really, to be honest with you. Um, I really felt like it was building towards something. And the good news was when I went back and played junior hockey on a number of occasions, my seasons did get stronger. They got better. Uh, I got more comfortable with my game in terms of knowing where my strengths and weaknesses were. And, uh, you know, the perception was that you could still make the NHL at age 22, 23, 24. Now we got many guys in the last probably three or five years, Earl, who are debuting in the NHL at age 25, 26, 27, 28. Of course, maybe salary cap implications have something to do with that. But at the end of the day, it's nobody cares if they honestly believe that you can come in and do a good job. So I felt pretty good at, uh, at 22, 23 to know that if it wasn't going to happen in Philadelphia, hopefully it would happen somewhere else. And I was fortunate enough that, uh, when the flyers were, uh, pressed for their, uh, protected list at the beginning of, uh, the, uh, uh, 89 season that, uh, Washington claimed me off of waivers. But I, I was really confident at some point if I wasn't going to be a Philadelphia Flyer, I was going to find another team to believe in me. So it was, it was a, it was an interesting process of those five years that you spoke of, and I learned a lot in that Philadelphia dressing room, including hanging out with a guy like Ed Hospodar, who again made the most out of his talent level and found a way to contribute and be a, a great teammate, you know. I also hung around and I talked a lot about training with Tim Kerr and how much we had in common. And the great Tim Kerr was also undrafted. So that gave me extra inspiration. So hanging around those guys, Hall of Famers like Mark Howe was just a, a dream con come true in, in itself outside of ever playing one game in the NHL. Well, I, th I think a lot of people don't know this about you is you had like 41 goals, 62 and 49, three straight yeah. years in juniors. And, oh. um, 
I could always put the puck in the net. That wasn't an issue. It was just a matter of finding the right scenario where I could do that. And even my first early years in, in, in the American hockey league where uh, Bob Clark and the flyers assigned me, uh, the year we won the uh, Calder cup in 88, I had 24 goals. And I think I led the team in seven game winners. And, you know, I, it's a, I knew I've, I'm not probably my skating wasn't strong enough to score 40 or 50 goals in the NHL, but I thought I could be a legit 15, 20 goal scorer in the national hockey league. And I did get my one opportunity in Hartford that year where I should have had a 20 goal season, but I pulled my abdominal muscles uh, towards the latter part of the season and, and didn't get a chance, but you know, I was, I was really close. I was, I was close to being only a handful of players in the history of the game to score 20 goals and have over 300 penalty minutes, uh, which included my old coach, Paul Holmgren. Uh, but that, I always enjoyed that part of the game scoring goals. I just, I just never hit the level I did in, in major junior A hockey with uh, the amount of goals, but it was all part of the part of a good story, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what, I think a lot of people don't know the difference between junior hockey and NHL hockey. Like uh, this memory always sticks in my mind of uh, watching a game between uh, Ottawa and Detroit and uh, Alexander Day, who was the uh, number one overall, I believe. Uh, he kept trying the same move on Steve Chase on uh, three straight times down the ice. It was the old, you know, dipsy doodle move between the legs. Yeah. Uh, and you could tell Steve Chase on who was probably a lot slower than Dag. Um, he had seen that move a thousand times and he was just laughing at him going, this ain't Hull. This is, this is Detroit. That's not going to yeah. work here. Uh, at what point do you realize the, the difference in skill from North Bay to even the Flyers training camp? Well, I, my first training camp was just a huge eye opener and I was somewhat shocked when Bob Clark offered me a contract after my first one, because I just felt like I was a kid out there who was going to uh, drop his autograph book out of his hockey pants. When I was on the ice, I, I was just way over my head. Uh, but I tried to play a, a, a physical brand, which I knew I could. And there's a part of me that always kind of liked playing physical, even, even all those years I was uh, scoring, you know, 60 goals and 50 goals in North Bay. There's a part of me that always loved to finish a check or, or drop my gloves when I felt it was, uh, I really needed to. So I always try to bring that aspect, even in my first training camp in Philadelphia. And it was enough to, to sign a contract, but we're talking light years between major junior a hockey and the NHL. That's why you have these stop gaps, whether it is, in my day, the uh, East Coast League or International Hockey League, or of course, still going strong as ever, is uh, one of the uh, the best leagues in the world to play in. If you're not playing in the NHL, is the American Hockey League. There's only a handful of guys that make that leap now, Earl, from junior hockey to the pros, uh, and, and I mean the NHL. It's just, it's really, really hard. And uh, you, you look at the numbers coming off of rosters in junior hockey and how many, how many actually sign 
NHL contracts, you know, it's not a high percentage. And then there's how many of them go on to have pro careers outside of the NHL. And there's, you know, the, the numbers aren't that strong. And then there's the number of the percentages that guys play in major junior hockey and then go on to play in the NHL and have long careers. And it's just, it doesn't support it. Right. Uh, two, three off of every roster get to play in the NHL. That means there's 75, 80% of uh, major junior hockey league players that don't even get a sniff. And I played with guys that were top scorers in junior hockey that never got a sniff, never got a chance, a look. So it it is, it is hard, but maybe you need five or six years to, to work on your craft. And I was fortunate enough. I had the American hockey league to do that. And by the way, you know, you, you also get to learn how to be a champion by winning a Calder cup in 88 that, that played a huge part in my development to go on and, and play in the NHL. So patience is huge in our game when you're not uh, a blue chip, can't miss prospect. Lafreniere, New York Rangers, right? Uh, Jack Hughes last year, New Jersey, first pick overalls. And there's an adjustment and they, they've, they've battled it. Like Lafreniere, I really would have thought would have had much. I really thought he'd have the success that a Tim Stutzel's having in Ottawa right now with the Rangers. And it hasn't been the case. Now, Jack Hughes has come a long way uh, from last season struggling. And he's still going to be a great player, but it takes some time physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Not everybody's just this can't miss kid right from the get go. Well, I think we're seeing that in LA uh, with the kid we drafted, uh, number two overall. I feel. Yeah. I mean, I think King fans are a little nervous because they see Stutzla, uh, yeah. who played against men last year, which I think helped him. Uh, and Byfield's, uh, you know, he, he's not exactly lighting up the AHL and in the World Juniors. He, I mean, I thought he had a good tournament, not a great tournament. Uh, I think King, but it's like a huge difference. I mean, he, he was in Sudbury last year playing against kids with acne. Um, you know, now he's in the AHL cause the OHL is not um, playing right now. And yeah, he should know. be back right now playing in the OHL. Um, but you know, uh, like I said, it just, sometimes it just takes a little longer and there are good examples. Pierre-Luc Dubois did not get off to a great start as a top five pick in Columbus. And we know what a hot commodity he was uh, most recently traded to Winnipeg. The other one that comes to mind real quick, Earl, is Leon Dreisaitl. There's another one that didn't get off to a great start. and, and didn't make the team right off the get-go. Um, and a lot of people questioned his, his uh, a hockey IQ. And the, the biggest thing they questioned with Leon Dreisaitl was his skating. They weren't sure if he was going to be this great skater in the NHL. And it just took about a good year for things to fall in place. And I'm sure... Th- you know, that, that should be the case with Byfield. I know it's hard watching others succeed while you're still 
patiently waiting for your opportunity, your, your, your growth, but you know, still plenty of times, plenty of room for, for, for that pick to work out well with the uh, LA Kings. Oh, sure. I mean, I, and I, another King draft pick, Kaliev, Arthur Kaliev, you know, he's got like this booming shot and in, in the one game he played in the NHL this year, he, he did score a goal, but he had another shot that you could tell he, he was saying to himself, why didn't that go in? You know, cause he's used to just blasting. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is the NHL. Like, that's an easy save for that goal. Is it a mental thing for these kids when they're that young to yeah. get broken by something like that? All of the above and mental, physical. Yeah, all of it. The key is to really make sure that, you know, a player of that magnitude that's green and has so much raw talent is kind of well insulated and has a great support group and the expect and the expectations don't, uh, you know, weigh in on anybody that it starts to crumble them because then you're just not doing your job. So it's having a good support group that's led by your leaders in the dressing room, i.e. now Dowdy, Kopitar, you know, Dustin Brown's been around forever, but you know, these guys, this is in many ways who these players are kind of grew, grew up watching uh carry the stanley cup and what they say is like gospel so you know they're they're in your hands and you've got to treat it like you know what i say or what i do on and off the ice or in practice will have a huge influence on this guy moving forward not only as an individual but as a team together so it's the whole complete package of the organization to, again, make sure that you, you, you treat your top asset um, with the respect that it deserves. Now let's get more into you because this podcast is about you, Kipper. Uh, at what point in your NHL career did you think, I might have to fight a little bit more? Like, was it said to you like, Hey man, you got to drop him a little more or did you figure it out yourself? Well, I think for the most part, uh, because I kind of enjoyed it and I, I kind of, you know, I felt like I grew up with the, the pro mentality of a Philadelphia flyer. And I wanted to kind of inherit that, that, broad street bully kind of mentality that it's there if you need it. Um, it really kind of shaped me into my first year with the Washington Capitals in, in 1989. And Brian Murray was, you know, the late Brian Murray, God rest his soul, uh, was the head coach of the Washington Capitals. And I went in one night and I fought Chris King in Madison Square Garden and uh, had a pretty good fight. You know, Kinger probably gave it to me a little bit more than I would have liked, but Brian Murray really acknowledged that fight. And at the time, Brian had always felt like our team was too soft. You know, we had Dino Cicerelli, uh, Mike Ridley. You know, we had Dale Hunter. We had Scott Stevens, but 
those were good players that uh, most often Brian still wanted on the ice. So myself, Alan May, two young guys coming in for the first time, we wanted to take the bulk of that. And, you know, I didn't even consider myself an Alan May's kind of uh, weight class. You know, Alan was always going to take on the toughest guys on the other team. We knew that, but I could be a good middle welterweight kind of guy for, for Alan and, and, and come in and support him as well. So, you know, if Alan's, you know, if Alan's up against, you know, 250 PM guys, you know, I could, I could take care of the 150 to 200, 225 class, but I still wanted to get a chance to play and put the puck in the net. Uh, my first full season in the NHL, uh, 79 games. I think I scored nine goals that season. I had, uh, 18, 20 points. So I wanted to set myself up with a, a chance to be a regular 15, 20 goal score. Unfortunately it didn't happen in, in Washington, but I, I think I kind of set myself up a little bit for Hartford and then following Hartford, I quickly ended up being traded to the New York Rangers. And then of course, here is this stack team that would rival a, a salary cap today in the NHL. Uh, let alone the one that we had in 1994 uh, where they just stacked so many good hockey players that played a lot more regularly on other teams. But we know that year it was all about slaying the dragon that was 54 years old in New York. I mean, even as a King fan, I was like rooting for the Rangers just because <laughs> the fans had just waited forever. Um Yeah. And, and you talked in the book about what a great leader Mark Messier was and how he kind of, even though you necessarily weren't playing a lot, he, he made you feel like you were like, he, he made you feel yeah. like, and, uh, like, yeah. His, his and that, that yeah. resonated with all of us. And the beauty of Mark is it just didn't stop on the, the 19th or 20th player on the roster or the 23rd or the 24th, depending how many we carried, but it would, go right through the dress room to uh, uh, guys in the administration office or, you know, behind a desk or Tommy who washed our laundry, uh, the PR department. It was like anybody that's in our inner circle that isn't feeling good, uh, Mark will address it and, uh, and figure out why and fix it. Cause that's, that's the way he thought the game. That's the way he, the, uh, the, his, his culture, his championship culture was like, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And if there is a weak link on or off the ice, I'll find it. I'll address it. And, uh, it'll make our team stronger. Well, I think there's that one story when he was still in Edmonton and, uh, Peter Klima, who was, a he's a guilty pleasure of me to watch just, didn't play a lot of defense Yeah, uh, that he threw him up against the airplane door on a flight mid flight and basically said, you're going to play defense on this team. And then uh, I think that might've been the year Klima scored the uh, winning goal in that yeah, game. The winner in Boston. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. That was common for Mark. Uh, you know, we had a, we had a few guys, you know, every once in a while, like to go out, have some late nights and, uh, I think uh, 
you know, Esatik and his feet, you know, dangling, you know, off the floor a couple occasions uh, was an uncommon between him and Mark. <laughs> well, I just remember watching. And, uh, yeah. and just, you know, Tegan was right there along Mark every step of the way winning those Stanley Cups. So uh, Mark, Mark did him right, ultimately. I mean, what does it feel like to hoist the cup? I mean, that is something that I don't think non-hockey fans really appreciate uh, how tough it is to win. And like uh, out here in L.A., we had a player, Marcel Dion, who played, I, I don't know, close to 16, 17 years, never even came close to playing yeah. for the cup. I mean, is it just, can you describe that feeling of having your name on the Stanley cup? Well, it's, it's, uh, or it's, it's everything it's cracked up to be for a hockey fan who, who grew up watching this trophy time and time be presented, uh, you know, winning your last hockey game of the season, the percentages of winning it, you know, forget about the percentages of playing ever in the NHL, but just the percentages of winning it. Um, it's just, you don't even, you don't even, you know, it's a, it's a pipe dream really, to be honest with you. So once you do lift it, uh, there is a, a surreal feeling towards it. Uh, and, you know, just being out on the ice after moments after and, you know, having Brian Leach look at me on the ice going, okay, what do we do now? And he's like, uh, and then Brian says to me, uh, well, let's go ask Mark. He's done it, you know, five other times. <laughs> so, um, it is, uh, it is an incredible feeling that you start now thinking about, you know, how the heck you even got here, who is responsible, your family, your friends, your your coaches, your teachers, um, it all happens on a real quick, you know, right in the next few minutes after you're, you're lifting this thing. And, and ultimately you're right back to, I can't believe this is happening. And when is that, uh, feeling not go away, but uh, like last night when I was watching uh, some of your fights, uh, a preseason game, uh, popped up from the 95 season, uh, between the Kings and Rangers and, uh, you know, I think Troy Crowder was fighting Langdon and his bench clearing brawl basically. And it's like, wow, that the Stanley cup, uh, I guess the, the honeymoon's over. It's back to work on the next season already. Like, yeah, we, we had an extended one because of, uh, the shortened season because, uh, of, of the lockout, uh, the first lockout of, uh, of three. Um, and, I think uh, it was a it was a it was a bit of a grind, kind of getting back into it in January, and we did we got off to a horrific start uh, that really painted us in a corner. But we did manage to uh, to make the playoffs the year that you're you're speaking of, and then knock out Quebec, who unfortunately they lost. That was the final season in Quebec, and they were ranked number one and that was supposed to be their, their going away present was to win a Stanley cup for the, for the city, um, in Quebec. And it, it never happened. Um, and oh my gosh, just remember leaving 
Quebec for the last time and, uh, and just feeling like they were going to push our bus over. (laughs) It was rocking. Our bus was rocking and they were knocking. Uh, But it was, uh, it was one of those years where we thought maybe we could, we could come back. Our team changed a lot though. You know, unfortunately uh, we, we lost Zuboff. Zuboff, of course, uh, as instrumental as Brian Leach and Mike Richter and Mark Messier that season. And uh, we, we probably couldn't overcome a few things, but our, our, our team makeup was much different in 95 than 94. And Steve Larmer, a great player, had real back issues, forced him to retire gave up $1.2 million on his contract because he didn't feel like he could play at a hundred percent where I know a lot of guys would have just mailed it in for that money. But Steve Larmer's got too much pride, man. And uh, too much of a stand-up guy to take the money and run. But uh, it was fortunate, unfortunate that we didn't, we didn't give ourselves a true chance to come back that following year. Cause those, those pieces you could win with no question about it. Now, maybe that the, Second greatest accomplishment in your career is, is getting to play for your hometown, uh, the Maple Leafs. Uh, although I'm sure you were sad to leave the Rangers. With, I mean, I know Ed Olchick struggled a little bit when he played in Chicago because uh, he was from there. It, it, what is the pressure? Uh, yeah, no, I was I was fine with the pressure. I think. Uh... Anytime that you you play in your hometown, I think I was just the 80th player to be born and raised in Toronto and play for the Leafs at the time. So again, you want to talk about uh, not liking your odds. Uh, <laughs> that one's a, a, a really tough one to hit if you're born in Toronto. But I think it's like anything else, you know, you're you're picking a, the right team or having the right team trade for you is like uh, picking a stock. You're not sure if it's on its way up or it's on its way down. And unfortunately, towards the latter part of of the mid-90s, the Leafs had had a couple of good runs at a conference final with the strength of Doug Gilmore, Felix Potvin, uh, Ander Chuck. And then to take another crack at it, 96-97, it started to change a little bit. Uh, some of the guys were already moved and there just wasn't enough gas in the tank anymore. And unfortunately the team started to kind of peter out uh, after those conference finals uh, appearances uh, earlier in the, in the decade. And I was a part of a team that needed some major changes. They needed to get rid of the old guards and bring in some new fresh faces and you know, unfortunately, Wendell Clark coming back a second time, you know, when I was on the Leafs was a nice move uh, for the city, but it it wasn't the one that got them back into contention. It just, uh, unfortunately, just cost them some younger assets. And like at that point of your career, uh, you certainly weren't old, but um in terms, did you feel you had to fight maybe a little more just because of the, well, I had, I had ended up in 90, uh, 97, of course, uh, that September, I, I 
suffered a major concussion in an exhibition game, uh, took, took the season off. And then at that point, yeah, Earl, just weighing out the pros and cons at age 32 to still play a certain way, take the punches. The guys kept getting bigger and stronger. And just understanding that if I was going to do it and do it for half a million bucks a year, I'd run the risk of probably uh, suffering more damage. And I didn't want that. I was just about to, to get married that year. You start envisioning uh, your life after hockey, how, how you want to be set up, uh, how you want to feel. And I really took that in consideration. Uh, the, other, the other thing that factored into it was I had auditioned for a new station here in Canada called Sportsnet. Uh, at that time, there was only one major uh, sports cable channel called TSN up here. Some people thought that Sportsnet would never hang around longer than five or six years uh, because the country's too small to support two stations. We know what the case is now in 2021. <laughs> but I had I had auditioned for an analyst job at that point, and they told me I got the job. And that's when I decided to retire, knowing that uh, I could do television for maybe another five, seven years, ended up being 21 with Sportsnet. So that, that factored in as well. Well, because I don't think people realize, uh, I always say fighting in hockey, it's, it's like being a mob hitman. If, if, if you won't do it, they'll, they'll get someone else to do it because there's six guys in the minors at that arrow the game you know i think the leafs had uh Tidomi, a Baumgartner, a couple other guys uh even on the rangers oh yeah there's i mean not sure not like you said there were others willing to do it and i know that um in in your last fight with bandon bush uh which i'll be honest with you when i saw you guys together in that interview i cried I, like i don't know what i'm not like trying to be funny i, I like, yeah, no, it was, it was emotional. It was, it was, it was, yeah, no, no, no. I, I trust it. me. I know when you're funny. Right. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> it was, it, it was, uh, it was a, it was good for me in so many ways. And that's the other thing that I try to make crystal clear in the book that, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, whether it's, you feel like it's unfinished business or, or loose ends, but that was, that was tying a loose end up for me. It was, it helped with some closure. It helped me understand, you know, a little bit more on, um, on how sometimes things happen, why they happen. Uh, and, and the, the key in all of that is not holding any animosity. And I wanted to kind of make that clear, especially after listening to Ryan and hearing things during that interview that, I would never even thought of or contemplated or understood, you know, and, you know, so many people for so long, you know, asked me, you know, uh, you know, whether or not I felt I could have died that night or, you know, what that would have done, you know, if I was seriously hurt, what it would have done to my family. And, and no one ever said, you know, I wonder what it would have done to Ryan if, if I would have been, you know, if I died or, you know, 
was seriously or permanently da- hurt or damaged. And he made it abundantly clear on, on how it affected him. And up until that point, never even crossed my mind, you know, what was going through a guy who, who won the fight, right. Who, who did what he was supposed to do and, you know, did his job, but he, he said it was a bigger struggle than he ever would have thought. I thought it was an interesting twist to, to the whole big picture. Well, just when I watched the interview, like you could tell in his, his demeanor and his, his body posture. And then that was a tough dude. Man. Both you guys were both fighting the giants and the, you could tell it like he was almost a little kid and like he, he wanted to apologize. And then I would look at you and I'm certainly not trying to put words in your, in your mouth, but I could tell you maybe say, Hey, I was trying to do the same thing to you. Maybe not necessarily hurt him, but like I was trying to beat you up too. So it's, it's, just, yeah. um, you know, yeah. don't, I don't want your apology yeah. almost. Yeah. Um, no. And he, he had, you know, the other thing, that was clear after those, all those years as well was, you know, moving forward, you know, through his skates or his shoes and hiding at times how hurt he had been and not letting the coach know. And then going back out there, knowing he was concussed or that he had suffered some sort of brain trauma and not leading on and downplaying it. And, you know, we're not the first to speak of this, but, you know, I think if there is anything that's been a plus in the evolution of, of our game is that, you know, guys don't have to do that anymore. They don't have to hide. They don't have to uh, put themselves in a position. We know it still happens, right? Earl, we're not dumb. We know guys still hide or downplay but not nearly at the same rate that what we went through. And it's okay to take a week off, take two weeks off. I know we're not all Sidney Crosby's, but when you can feel like you can miss a playoff series, playoff season, playoff game, then, you know, the next guy will be a little bit more comfortable saying, I can't go tonight. I can't play. I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling a hundred percent. Well, I think, and I know we only have a few more minutes and I, I just want to say thank you for doing this. I'm, I'm, oh, no problem. I'm sure it wasn't on your bucket list of uh, interview. Uh, Are you kidding? I'm on inappropriate Earl's podcast, man. I'm, I should probably I'm just good. there. Uh, <laughs> No, cause, I mean, I usually I like to crescendo towards a, a funny story or, um, you know, when I was the co-host of Roddy Piper's podcast, I, I would just give him a name and say, give, give me a few thoughts on, you know, uh, the ultimate warrior or whatever. Uh, but it, it's yeah. kind of heading toward, uh, something I want to talk about. Like you played, uh, probably in the last era where fighting was a strategical tool. Um, and a win or a loss could make or break someone's career. Like your junior teammate, uh, Troy Crowder, he went on that almost legendary 
half a season run where he was, uh, you know, he beat Probert, uh, another teammate of yours in Hershey, Jeff Chikrin. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as he lost to Darren Kimball, like his stock dropped, like, you know, a tech stock. <laughs> um, and yeah. so the winning a, a, or losing of a fight could, could keep you in the league or, or get you out of the league. Uh, was uh, that kind of mental pressure um, hard to overcome? Like the fact that, you know, if I lose to this guy, I might be in Hershey or wherever tomorrow. Yeah. I, I think I, I didn't, I didn't stress over it too, too much because, you know, uh, I never, I only, I only fought to buy myself time or to, you know, make sure that I have, I found a way to kind of get noticed, uh, and feel like I was part of a solution to a coaching staff or a general manager than, than, than being a bit of a problem. Now the problem may lie into a guy that goes and fights and continues to lose, but I, I didn't weigh it out that way, like probably more prominent heavyweights would, right? So because I was never, I never really put myself in that type of weight class, I always felt like I was a player that was just buying time to maybe play more regularly or, or, or score more goals. Now, I mean, ultimately probably didn't solidify myself as much as I would have liked, but I was able to, you know, not necessarily feel like I needed to, to win every fight, but just as long as you showed up and you, you got yourself, you got your nose a little dirty, it was enough. I didn't have to, for the most part of my career, I didn't have to feel like I needed a major knockout, but I did during that exhibition game against Ryan Vandenbush, which I talked about in the book, but that was because I was at a different place uh, in my career that I've never been born before but i i always fought to for 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 the uh the pat on the back to say that i showed up and we didn't back down from it but not necessarily feel like i needed to uh to be this great technical strong fighter who who just you know beat the shit out of somebody else but others felt that way for sure and uh you know i just i just used fighting as a mechanism to to, to show emotion, um, to show that we wouldn't back down and to make people feel like yeah, it might be a long night. If I got to deal with this guy's energy every night, telling me, you know, he's going to go run somebody if I don't knock it off or something like that, which happened a lot. It'd be like, you know, some nights you just say you'd look across, you know, the ice and go, you know, what kind of night you want tonight? You want to, an easier one or you want a uh, tough one, you know, and if somebody's played three games in four nights, maybe they don't want to deal with my shit. So they, they won't go run Dino Cicerelli. They won't go run another player and stir it up. And that happened quite a not, uh, quite often in my era. Yeah, no, I mean, it was really, uh, seemed like each team had three or four tough guys on it. And, uh, you know, I know like in, in Washington, you had, uh, Sheehy and, uh, May, yeah. of course, and, uh, Corvo was a pretty tough dude. Uh, yeah. even, uh, 
a guilty pleasure favorite of mine, uh, Ed Costellic, who uh, had a drive by in the league. Uh, yeah. And really, before we get into my serious issue about mental health, uh, can you, what kind of feeling reverberates through a bench, win or lose in a hockey fight? Like I was, uh, probably one of my favorite fights to watch uh, was uh, when Larry Melnick fought Dave Brown at center ice. And obviously on paper, you know, Dave Brown should probably kill him just because, you know, Larry wasn't a small player, but, you know, wasn't a giant. And Melnick beat him at center ice. And you could see the Ranger bench just seemed like they were a foot taller after that. And you could see the flyer bench go, "Uh uh-oh, our guy just lost. Is that, how much of an effect does that have on a team? I think it's still... Yeah, I think it still does a lot. Um, and we don't see fights anywhere near like we did before. But, you know, uh, Lucic uh, in, in one of Daryl Sutter's first games fights Josh Anderson. And I thought, you know, Josh is a big, strong guy. I mean, he's not quite Tom Wilson, but he's he's the closest thing I think we have. So, you know, for, for Josh Anderson and, and Lucic to go at it, would resonate, like you just said, uh, right through the bench. Uh, Lucic still can bring it, man. Say what you will about his contract being too fat. Some nights he looks like he skates with a piano on his back, but this guy can still bring it physically. Uh, the other fight that I watched was, uh, Adam Ernie and, uh, and, and Barkley Goudreau, uh, fight, uh, the other night in Detroit and Goudreau, I knocked him out. I mean, he put him down with a right hook. And uh, again, if you're, if you're Tampa Bay now and you've just come off a Stanley cup wing and everybody's, you know, biting at your, your knees to, to take you down. uh, That's a heck of a statement, man. Going into the back half of this season is like, we're not resting on just one cup. You want to take us down. You better come at us better than that. I, I thought that was a a moment for them as well moving forward. It's still out there. It just doesn't happen as often as we, me and you, Earl, would probably like. But that's why that's why the NHL has been very reluctant to take fighting out of the game because I think it's in a good place now where you don't have as many fights looking like they were arranged in a parking lot. But it's there if you need it, and it does it does kind of ripple not only through your bench and your organization, but right into the fan base, which is never a bad thing because we know hockey fans are passionate, they're emotional, and there's nothing more emotional than than two guys dropping their gloves fighting for you know their teams. But it's also like when I saw what first like uh, made me aware of you is when I saw you fight Chris Simon, who was a uh, mountain of a man. Uh, yeah, really, uh, I, I think uh, he started the movement of like these giant players. I mean, Dave Brown was certainly there as well, and and, and you know maybe back in my era with Clark Gillies, but like that's right around when he started coming into the league where the players were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and like, when I saw you fight him, I'm like, this guy on Washington's crazy. Like 
Simon he great. was vicious. And I, but, I, I talk a lot about it, about it in my book and how I just felt like, you know, he was, he was coming after me. It was almost, it was bullying a playground kind of thing. And, you know, I just had to try to figure a way to put an end to it, or at least show him that I've had enough of his, of his lip. I've had enough of him chirping me, chirping our team, you know, and I had to, I had to address it. And the guys got about, you know, a good five inches on me. And I probably gave up uh, a good 40 pounds to him. Um, and that was one of those where did I win? No. Did I lose badly? No. Did I earn a lot of respect for myself and my teammates? Yes. That ultimately was supposed to be the way fights turn out, except my last one, but that one was a good one. <laughs> yep. You, you won a lot too. I mean, that, well, that fight with Simon reminded me of another one of my favorite players, George McPhee. Uh, oh my God. Did George throw him jackhammers, eh? <laughs> Uh, I just was obsessed with him. With I mean, I guess you'd classify him as a smaller player, uh, but he would fight like uh, at Hospodar. He beat at, you know at Center Ice in Philly, and uh, Dave Brown he fought, and he was, he was kind of beating him until Jay Caulfield jumped in. But that's another podcast. Yeah, uh, but it. I know your time is uh, coming to an end on the inappropriate Earl podcast. Uh, oh, we got, we got a few minutes. I know there's a couple things that you want to talk about, you know, uh, yeah. of course, uh, um, mental health is continuing to be, a an, an issue, not only, uh, you know, in hockey and sports, but society as general, but, uh, I know it's, it's, uh, near and dear to your heart. Well, it is. Cause I, this is where, uh, the one, I guess intersection where I think comedy and hockey uh, maybe collide. Uh, wouldn't think there'd be many uh, points where they would, but uh, you know, I, I've certainly uh, since I've done comedy, I've, I've probably lost ten of my friends or uh, coworkers to uh, mental illness. And uh, I know I told you, and I asked for your permission to bring it up. Um, I was very affected by Mark Pavlich's passing. Uh, just to me, he's a hockey legend just on his miracle on ice. Like if he just did that, he'd be a legend to me. And then being a Ranger fan uh, and watching him play a lot. And I guess he ended his career with the North stars and, you know, he passed uh, due to mental health issues. And uh, I know you corrected me and, and, you know, just what made me sad even more than his passing from mental health issues and, and, I could almost bring in Bugard in, into the same situation that didn't seem like that many people helped him. Like uh, it, it seemed like, you know, maybe his ex teammate who lives in China back really was the only one who took any kind of initiative and, and what can the league do? I guess is my overall uh, question to make sure there's not another Pavlich, a Bugard, a Rick Rippon, a Belak. Yeah. Uh, um, Cause I get, I'm just a fan. You know, and I, no, and it's all legit. And for the record, I, 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 I don't want people to think that I corrected you because I, I didn't. Um, you're, you're just talking a little bit prior to our show today. You know, we we did speak of, um, you know, uh, Pavlich, and and the question is, you know, are we doing enough? Can we do enough? And 
I think what happened with the, with the Mark Pavlich story more than anything um, is, you know, what, what kind of brought a little bit more attention to it was the fact that uh, the great uh, Barry Beck, New York Ranger, had publicly come out and, and questioned uh, particularly the New York Rangers. And I, I don't want to quote him, but I think he said uh, he referred to the Rangers as, as cowards for not facing this. And not that I corrected you or anyone else, Earl, but, you know, the point that I wanted to make is, you know, especially when it comes to Barry Beck, is that a, a lot of this stuff is done privately and internally for the very various reasons. But the biggest one is, is this is the way, you know, families and people want it in terms of, you know, they, it, unless they come out publicly, it's very hard uh, for the New York Rangers or, or ex players or whoever's involved in the scenario, you know, speak publicly of it. So there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of lack of information, uh, in terms of what's out there. And that's because that's really the way it still needs to be. But I can assure you when it came to Mark Pavlich that, you know, and, and to Barry Beck that, the Rangers were heavily involved. They were. And, but what you hear, or what you know of is it remains confidential. And that includes with the, you know, the NHL alumni. I've been a member since the moment I retired from the NHL alumni. Um, Mark Napier did a terrific job and had to deal with a lot of things. And now it's Glenn Healy who deals with a lot of uh, players who suffer mental illness and, and, and the NHL alumni's job is to make sure that uh, they have a lot of uh, support around them, whether it's emotional, spiritual, or financial, that they're in a position where they can get the help that they need or deserve. Um, and the Rangers were right there for Mark Pavlich. But, you know, and Barry Beck, you know, calls out John Davidson and, you know, because I know that organization exceptionally well, and I know they would never turn their back on anybody, you know, let alone a, a player like Mark Pavlich, who's meant a lot to the New York Ranger organization. But the problem here is when we speak of some players that get in trouble and Earl, now you're also talking about, you know, uh, the law and, and court issues and all of that, it gets very, very uh, technical, very dicey. And, you know, you're talking about judges here. You're talking about uh, 25, 27 violent assaults. And then, you know, you're talking about players that are classified, maybe a, a dangerous offender, you know, how you show support sometimes it can be a slow process. And unfortunately we just didn't get to, to mark fast enough, you know, and, and unfortunately uh, he's not here today, but honest to God, I can tell you that um, I'm, I'm proud. I'm a proud member of the NHL alumni. I'm proud when I hear stories of, of, of our association being there in, in ways that uh, can help, players ex-players know that there are options out there there are programs out there there's you know i've i've we've heard and listened to you know glenn healy pulling our ex-players uh, out from underneath of 
bridges and putting them in situations where they can get better and hope they can get better, you know, but they, they've, they've got to meet us a little bit too, right? You got to have, you got to have someone that embraces the help and wants to take advantage of it to, to truly see some success. And, and we're getting there. Unfortunately, we just, we couldn't get to, to Mark fast enough or um, we, we couldn't reach him, you know, until it was too late, unfortunately. No, I mean, I know there was a player out here in LA. Uh, I think he played against him a little bit, Matt Johnson, who, uh, you know, uh, you know, had a, a nice NHL career, and, uh, but, you know, as the role of a tough guy and he was fighting the super heavyweights for a large portion of his career. And I'm sure he felt some guilt or whatever, uh, remorse about what happened with him and Jeff Bukaboom, uh, you know, he ended up being homeless on the streets of Santa Monica, which, uh, you know, as a fan of his, just, it made me sad. And like, uh, you know, I also see it in the world of pro wrestling where you see how a lot of those guys end up and, uh, you know, in the UFC, you know, like I, I had Don Fry on my podcast, uh, in my house and he was probably the first celebrity to, you know, be silly enough to agree to come to my house to do this show. And, uh, I got sad when he left because he, you know, he's not that much, uh, older than us. And like, he, he could, I'd help him get up off the couch and like, uh, you know, like I'll assume there's some form of CTE, you know, with NHL players, UFC wrestling. Uh, so it just, I'm just trying to do my small part to raise awareness, I guess. Yeah, no. And, you know, it's something that we can't let our foot off the pedal here, you know, with, with mental, uh, um, wellness and support groups and, and knowing that there are options out there. And if you see signs where, you know, you're, you're not yourself or you don't feel right, it's, it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to feel not right. And it's okay to, um, you know, reach out. And I think, you know, any forms, any form of sport or, you know, work or personal professional, it doesn't matter whatever we're in. Uh, I, I think, I think the underlining message is better than it's ever been before that it, it's okay. It's okay to not feel right. And it's okay to reach out for help. And yeah, I think I mean, if we keep sending that message. We'll, we'll get on that other side of, uh, of where we need to be. Well, I think you make a great point for, you know, people like me. And I didn't mean you corrected me like in a in an aggressive way. I just, uh, you, you know, as a fan, I don't have the inside sources you have. Yeah, and, I know. I, 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 yeah, I thank you. And, you know, it's like the with the Bugard situation, uh, you know, I think fans were just given the um, the dialogue that, you know, he was just left to wander the streets of New York on his own and no one helped him. and. And I'm sure that the Rangers and, and the league maybe tried with him and, and didn't quite work out. But uh, so, yeah, there, there are, there's so many stories where we have pulled players out. We've put them in um, uh, homes. We've put them in programs. They, they leave on their own and they go right back out on the street and it's really hard and it's frustrating too, as well for, for so many that put in such a big effort, you know, um, and, and they're not quite ready or, or, 
or won't meet you a little bit to, to get the help. Um, but you keep trying, Earl, you keep trying because that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Not give up. That's the hockey player mentality. Well, I think it's also important, like with players uh, that played in your era, maybe even the era before, like, you know, if you watch, you know, like, like the smaller players, like you know, Eddie Johnstone, George McPhee, uh, Nevin Marquardt, uh, you know, these guys were fighting you as well, you know, fighting Chris Simon, fighting a Darren Kimball, uh, you know, a Robert Dirk, who I, I know was your first in I mean, Robert Dirk was a giant and so, giant, giant. <laughs> but you beat his ass. Uh, oh gosh, no business fighting guys that big, but, uh, I'm glad I'm here to tell you about it. That's for sure. So, so am I. And I, I feel guilty for taking the, I know I, I limited you to an hour and we've gone over. Uh, so, uh, well, listen, it, it flew by, right? It was well, it did. easy. I, I could talk to you, uh, you know, about, for another hour about, uh, cause uh, maybe we can end on this. You know, like I, sped through the hockey part of your book just because I was so interested in it. You named, you know, names. You mentioned Jeff Chikrin. I'm like, oh, my God, I remember him and Troy Crowder, uh, who is a legend to me. Uh, but I found the most interesting. No, I mean, he that was, hype. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the hype. I love the hype around Crowder, Probert, Domi, Probert. Oh, man, that just... You know, but, I don't know. I don't want to sound like a Neanderthal or anything like that. But man, the uh, the hype around those two uh, those those names was was television, great television in itself. Well, I remember, uh, and well, maybe this will lighten up the mood a little bit. Uh, I remember walking around the forum opening night. I, I do forget who the Kings were playing, but everyone in that building, uh, and that was the night. Crowder be Probert, everyone was talking about it. Like, <laughs> like everyone was whispering, Hey, did you hear what happened to Probert in Jersey yeah. tonight? And, and then, uh, a couple nights later, he, he with one punch, uh, broke Jeff Chickren's nose. And I, I don't think I've ever heard a, a crowd in Philly, it was like a balloon deflating. It was because you know, Crowder was kind of an unknown to a degree. To, uh, most hockey fans, and then he then he beat up Tony Horchak, yeah. and and uh, I think he beat him up twice. And, and well, there's it was just just like, uh, it's like a ripple effect. The energy that those guys could bring to a hockey game, and how it kind of just ripples right through a building, right through a you know the hockey world is it was fun back in those days. Well, it was. I mean, I remember uh, Vancouver bringing up uh, Southern California's own Craig Cox, and uh, just to go, hey, you got to fight Crowder. <laughs> you got to fight him. <laughs> like someone's yeah. got this guy, and then uh, I don't think Crowder uh, or uh, Cox ever played another game uh, in the NHL after uh, what happened. Uh, so uh, you know, it was just such a, a does word spread like. When that Probert Crowder fight happened, did your locker room hear about that? Oh my gosh, everybody. It was it was must watch TV. It was. You knew it was coming. You knew Domi, Probert, all of it. It was just like how how can I 
like, God, I hope we're not playing that night. You know, it's like, uh, it was pay-per-view stuff, man. It, it was, I love the fact that you're such a wrestling guy too, because even my days in North Bay, Saturday nights with the wrestling, all of it, we had a huge wrestling team. Our captain, Wade McPhee, uh, loved, loved every, every character, every, every wrestler. I was a Roddy Piper guy too. I, oh, he was, was my guy. When he was, and he wasn't, he wasn't a big guy, right? Not a big no. guy like the big boys. I mean, he was probably, uh, you know, when I stood next to him, I was taller. Uh, I, I guess he was six feet, maybe, uh, I guess, you know, toward the end of his life, he was still probably 220 and pretty ripped. Uh, oh, he's, you could tell he was a thick guy for sure. Um, yeah. But just his, it's, it was the personality that made him look like he was about seven feet tall. Oh, he, he was so good. Come to the comedy store late at night. And uh, he was so humble. And, you know, I, I think he was almost embarrassed to ask for stage time because he knew we'd all like struggled forever to, to get in at the comedy store, which is like, for me, that's like playing for the Maple Leafs or Rangers for you. And uh, he would just tell these stories. Yeah. And uh, it was like seeing Superman come into the driveway. Like he'd get it, he had his little Mercedes and, He'd get out and just like it was like that's I, so cool. I'm still affected by uh, getting to do a podcast with him, and because uh, like back then in the '80s, uh, you know, with the internet not being really what it is today, uh, I really thought Kamala was from Uganda. So <laughs> I even have my uh, Kamala doll. He's my good luck uh, charm there. Uh, but you know now you can look up Nick Kiprios and I know Ohio, uh, you know, and, and or you could look up Kamal and go, oh, he's not from Uganda, he's from Mississippi. Uh, so yeah, yeah, a little bit of magic has been taken away. But yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I I enjoyed that part of my life as a teenager, uh, you know, following Macho Man and Elizabeth and all those characters, man. It was it was good TV, and again. You know, whether you were uh, a believer like my grandmother, that it's real or not, they just knew great television. They, they, you know, in many ways, they were all heavyweights on their hockey team, sending the message out, you know, for all the right reasons. And as soon as they grabbed that emotional tie that you have, then you're in you're in big time. And that's, that was the beauty of wrestling back then that they could, they, they could, they could draw that emotion out of you like a, a heavyweight could for us in the, the mid eighties or the nineties. Oh, I, I mean, uh, getting back to hockey. I mean, I could talk wrestling. We might be here another two hours. <laughs> we'll uh, do it another show. Yeah. You're like, all right, Earl, it's time to end it. <laughs> uh, but it was like, I, I bring back, um, you know, hockey, the emotion to, to see like Washington and the Rangers play against each other and, and, and uh, you know, Philly and the Rangers and the Kings in Edmonton or obviously uh, Calgary and Edmonton. Uh, I mean, those were like uh, games played in an octagon. Uh, like, is there anything the league can do where, where I, I mean, I'm not saying I want to bring back bench clearing brawls, but like to put a, just a little more emotion into the game. I think 
ultimately it, it really comes down to the players. It's yeah, there there's the owners and, and the league run, you know, pretty much the rules, but they haven't tweaked the rules enough where it's changed so much that, you know, you it's pretty, put it this way. It's, it's there if you need it. So it's really up to the players to decide whether how emotional they want to get and how far they want to push it. And I, I just like the fact that it's, it's still there if you need it. Right. It's just, if you don't want it, you don't have to feel like you need to do it. Uh, but it's, it's there in case you need it. I'd rather see you guys drop your gloves and and fight than than start stick swinging. Right. Sure. As an outlet. So that's up to the players to decide what they want to do with it. Ultimately, they're the ones playing it. They're, they're the ones that decide. And just one last note before we wrap up uh, the part I enjoyed the most about your book was I thought I'd speed through the hockey stuff and then go, ah, the rest isn't really of interest to me. How much drama can there be in the TV side of the business? Uh, and I really think people should, read the whole book, but the, the TV stuff was almost more fascinating to me. Just the, the behind the scenes, uh, it's almost a, a different kind of mental pressure, uh, getting scoops. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I say this like with the trade deadline coming up, I'm sure you're working the phones and you know, who's selling, who's buying. And I know there's, you know, you and Bob McKenzie and Dan Drager and, and uh, the great Doug McClain, like just like probably 10 of you who are fighting for the scoops. Uh, how do you go about out scooping the scoopers? Well, I'm not sure where it's, it's probably not in that same place anymore, which I, I kind of don't like to hear because, you know, competition's good for everybody. It's not only good for sport. I, you're a competitive guy, I'm sure, at the comedy store and who who's on first, who's on last, who headlines, who has more time than somebody else. You're competitive. It com- competition is so healthy for business, right? Right. So I think we've lost a little bit of that lately, uh, up here between Sportsnet and TSN. I hope it kind of evolves back to that. We'll see now the NHL signed this massive deal with ESPN. They come back into the picture, which I think is great because NBC isn't an all sports station like TSN or, or uh, Sportsnet, but ESPN is. So they have a chance now to kind of lead the next little while with some information or some inside information that could feed, I think, uh, a much bigger uh, audience in the United States ever before. So I hope ESPN starts having more shows around hockey outside of, uh, a two minute clip at 10 or 11 PM. Uh, but saying that it, it was fun. It was fun being a part of that because I am a competitive guy all the way around and getting inside information or talking about stuff that other people don't know is kind of fun. It's kind of cool. So I hope it comes back full circle, but it was a, it was a fun, fun time for me to be in that industry and, and, and raise the bar with that competitiveness that you're talking about, because uh, we did take it to another level with, uh, with TSN and it was fun being part of it. 
Well, it was just like, it was almost like a repeat of your hockey career where you wouldn't, you know, I don't want to say all, I think most players after their careers were over, uh, they're not built for TV. Like, uh, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm an, I look at has an entertaining uh, commodity. It, it's, uh, there's more than just saying, uh, well, the LA Kings are looking at Patrick Lyon. I, you have to say it in an entertaining way. Like, you know, you yeah. did it. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I like how Stu Gremson is on the NHL network. He, he kind of is like you, it's entertaining, but knowledge, uh, I won't mention the certain people. I, it's a little boring on TV. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I appreciate, uh, I think people have to be entertained, especially with hockey. Like, since it's not yet, a gigantic sport in in the U.S. I think it's important to have some form of uh, entertainment. Oh, for sure. To go with the knowledge. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. And we try to do that, like uh, you know, just doing the show called Real Kipper at Noon on LineMovement.com. It's on YouTube, so uh, please subscribe when you get a chance. But that's one of the things that Doug McLean and I, who do this show, you know, three times a week, want to do is just bring whatever conversation we're going to have anyways uh, to the forefront. And I know deep down hardcore hockey fans, they still love to hear what we're hearing. And Doug McLean's favorite line on our show is I'm not, I'm not telling you if it's true or not. I'm just telling you what I hear. Right. That, that may be enough. Like you've been around the game for 35, 40 years. You know, a lot of people still in high places. If you can share what you're hearing, That'll entertain me for the next hour. So I, I hope ESPN does that. I really do because uh, it, it is not just about showing the games, but it's about uh, being emotionally attached to the game. And that means 24-7, right around the clock, that you want to hear, breathe, and live the game of hockey. That's the way we've been up here in Canada, Earl. And there's still plenty of time to make a lot of uh, believers in the uh, south south of the border that you can be that way with your favorite team as well. Well, uh, Nick, I can't thank you enough for this. Uh, you know, everyone, please read his book, Undrafted. Yeah. Well, I appreciate. It. We didn't even have time to tell you about my my new cocktail. Please do. Please, oh, okay. no rush. So, all right. So, uh, it, within the last year and a half, two years, when I kind of uh, took a step back from broadcasting. You know, I'm watching Ryan Reynolds be really cool with his uh, with his gin, and I'm like, I got to, I got to, we got to do something like that. So, we were uh, we were around a dinner table with family friends, and we started talking about these RTDs. Do you know what an RTD is, Earl? I don't. Please tell me. RTD stands for ready to drink, and that's what these things are: ready to drink out of a can. So these things have kind of really slow down the the sale of beer and wine, I think, in the last little while because there's these cocktails that uh, are ready to drink in a can. And White Claw was probably the biggest one that we've seen in the history of beverages. Um, and now they've exploded, especially uh, up here in Canada. So we made an RTD uh, out uh, with some family friends. Uh, it's called Little Buddha Cocktail. And this particular one is a premium vodka uh, that's uh, uh, that's mixed with uh, grilled pineapple and rosemary. <laughs> so it's all organic. And the key in all of this, Earl, is people want you know 
to, to still be healthy now more than ever. So they want to drink these and still have under a hundred calories. Uh, want to be gluten-free, no sugar, but tastes great. That's what we've done. So it's been about a year and a half from now. We've had so much success. We're going to come out with a second flavor called peach tea, but we're not in the States yet, but we are working on that. So it's called little Buddha cocktail. Please follow it on Twitter, Instagram. And, uh, when I get a chance, Earl, I'm sending you a case. Well, I've never had a drink in my life. So I'll are you okay? So you're no alcohol. Well, I'm not like against it. I just, my mom, this is like, you know, when we should end the podcast when I'm talking about my mom, but uh, she bribed me as a child. If I didn't drink or do drugs till I was 18, she would get me the car of my choice. And I, she did. And I never uh, was tempted, even though I'm in comedy and I see more drugs than probably Keith Richards. Uh, I've wow. Never, but I will give what you send me to my friends who are comics. And trust me, beautiful. it will be gone. Beautiful. Well, I, you know what? Uh, hats off to you, man, because, uh, you know, that's, that's tough being in your industry and having all that around you. But I think it, it, it shows to the, the strength of, of you. And, and your comfort level. And uh, I, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Good for you. I mean, I was raised by very strange but effective parents. Uh, so um, I miss them a lot. So enjoy yours. I know yours are both still alive. Uh, yes. So uh, I mean, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Oh, listen, uh, my pleasure. We'll do it again. I know I love hearing that you're a hockey fan. Uh, especially, uh, you know, you in the comedy industry. Uh, I mean, a very competitive it's, business. You guys all do a great job out there and, uh, love to come back on your show and talk more hockey. Well, I would love to, uh, you know, you have an open invite. I mean, I'm a gigantic hockey fan and like, I don't get starstruck at all. Like when I met Jim Carrey, uh, you know, at the comedy store, he's like, Oh, you're very funny. And it, it didn't really phase me. But when I met Troy Crowder, on the <laughs> no, I'm serious. What he's this awesome. Is, when I met him on, on Venice beach, I, I just walked up to him and I said, Hey man, thank you for all your fights. And uh, thank you uh, just for everything. And he looked like, he looked scared. <laughs> like, oh, he's so humble. Yeah. He's so he is a gentle giant, that guy. He's uh, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So not not surprised to, to hear his reaction uh, after you told him that. And uh, when I met Paul Bizanet in the comedy store, he was, uh, <laughs> I won't say what he told me, but he was very interesting as well. Uh, he yeah. Hot, he had a hot girl with him and in the middle of my act. Of course. Like, hey, you're really funny, Earl, but I got to... <clears throat> with this girl. So can you get to your closer? So, uh, <laughs> probably that sounds that. like, but, uh, follow that sounds like biz nasty. Oh, he was great. Like I, that's what I love about 99.9% uh, .9 of the hockey players I've ever interviewed, spoken with met in person. They've all been great. Maybe one was a bit of a weenie, but, uh, you know, I won't mention his name. You, you, you may have fought him. I'll just say that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Nick, thank you so much. Uh, listen to Nick's show, Line Movement. It's on YouTube. Uh, subscribe to it on Twitter. And uh, Real Kipper on Twitter and Instagram. Is that uh, your Instagram? 
Yeah, at Nick Kiprios, uh, Instagram. I think real Kipper was taken. Can you imagine the nerve of that guy? That's probably the guy I didn't like that you fought. So uh, <laughs> he might be moonlighting as you, but uh, this has been Inappropriate Earl, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Uh, Nick will come back for more. And uh, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Earl.